0: Now this morning's service is a bit different from some of the others um, as indicated by what I'm wearing this morning and some of you are wearing as well. It focuses on something that we rarely talk about in church but does pervade our lives, our media, and our society like few other cultural phenomena, sports. Love them or hate them, they impact the way our communities interact, communicate, and even feel about themselves. And in some cases, are as much a part of a person's identity as faith or political party. So hopefully, regardless of your stance on competitive athletics and their place in our world, I hope we can all have a little bit of fun today as we examine the bad, the good, and the in-between of sports. So that said, whoever you are, from wherever you come, you are welcome here. Whomever you love, however you define family, you are welcome. Whatever the color of your skin, the language your grandparents spoke, the cultures that move in your being, we, welcome you. Whatever you believe, whatever your prayer and sacrament, we welcome you to share this morning in our faith of love. And so, let us go forward ever in love. Welcome to our worship. Welcome to our celebration.
1: Our second reading is from the Hall of Fame coach of the Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi. Watch your beliefs. They become your words. Watch your words. They become your actions. Watch your actions. They become your habits. Watch your habits. They become your character. Individual commitment to a group effort. What is what makes a team work, a company work? society work, civilization work, and always remember, perfection is not attainable, but if we we chase perfection, we can catch excellence.
0: So growing up a Red Sox fan living in Detroit from the age of seven on was not an easy proposition. To be fair, growing up a Red Sox fan right up until this last decade or so was not particularly easy for anyone. Now I remember getting teased at school for Buckner's error in 1986. I remember watching the New York Yankees win pennant after pennant. And I remember walking Commonwealth Avenue amongst thousands of stunned and silent Bostonians after the extra innings game seven loss to New York in 2003. And I remember the curse, the curse of the Bambino the karmic retribution supposedly suffered by Red Sox fans for the trade of the greatest baseball player ever, Babe Ruth. It is said that Ruth hated the Yankees so much that when he got the call he'd been traded, he pushed his upright piano through the plate glass window in his living room into the western Massachusetts lake below. Divers have actually tried to recover the piano, but apparently it it has since disintegrated. Reporters would report on it, fanatics would deny it, fans would debate it, but for better or worse, the curse pervaded Red Sox nation. Every preseason, people would start saying, this is the year we're gonna make it past those Yankees. This is the year all our patience will pay off. This is the year we will break the curse. So prevalent was the cursed myth that the antiquated street sign along the Charles River on Starrow Drive meant to read reverse curve had been graffitied to read reverse the curse. As devastating a couple decades as I had as a Red Sox fan, when a friend showed up at my Boston apartment saying that she had tickets for game four of the Yankees series but didn't want to go, I knew we had to go. The year was 2004 and I lived nearly walking distance from Fenway Park where they had last celebrated a World Series victory in 1918 the same year they would trade Babe Ruth to the Yankees immediately following the season. In the time between 1918 and 2004, a span of 86 years, the Yankees had amassed 27 World Series championships. The Red Sox had won zero. But 2004 was particularly dismal Winning the wild card behind the division leading Yankees and breezing through the divisional playoff series, the exciting season seemed to be coming to a terrible yet familiar end, as the Yankees had won the first three games of the best of seven series that determined who would represent the American League in the World Series. Now, my friend and I had tickets to a game which if the Red Sox lost, would end their season in embarrassment. Providing yet another story for the future generations of disappointed Sox fans to lament while ever discussing the curse. Really wanting to go to the game, despite the outcome, I promised my friend emphatically that we could be the difference. And that if we went to the game, the Red Sox would not get swept. Their season would not end that night if only we showed up to give our support. So I'm happy to say I convinced her. We went and it was a really difficult game for the most part. The Red Sox were behind most of regulation and the mood in the stadium was tense at best. Down one run with no outs in the bottom of the ninth, the Red Sox season appeared to be ending. A leadoff base hit extended our agony, and the immediate substitution of a pinch runner let everyone in the world know that the Red Sox were setting up a steal of second base. Now all game there had been cheering and chanting, some fans breaking out into choruses of, reverse the curse, reverse the curse, And one such chant was kind of surfacing in the background as pinch runner Dave Roberts took his lead off and waited, muscles taut like the string of an archer's bent bow, and waited an agonizingly long time for the pitch that would allow him to steal second base or get caught trying. But then something magical happened. Amidst the nervous din of a stadium, terrified its season might be over, the jumbotron screen behind the monster outfield wall focused in on a sign someone had brought to the game. It didn't say, reverse the curse. It said simply, believe. The B, of course, in the recognizable red script of the Red Sox logo. A hush fell over Fenway Park. The impossible silence of 36,000 pair of eyes looking away, 36,000 pair of fingers being crossed simultaneously. (coughs) And as if in slow motion, the pitch was released, a high and away fast ball that found the catcher's glove with a flap. The throw was quick and low towards second base, but it didn't matter our belief and Dave Roberts' skill and athleticism had delivered him safely to second base. Now if you don't know the rest of the story, the Red Sox never looked back that season. Roberts would go on to score the tying run later in that inning and the Red Sox won that game in the bottom of the 11th. And then they won every game after that until they brought home the World Series title, something they hadn't done since letting Babe Ruth go 86 years before. Now it took a while, but the spiritual implications of what I had witnessed did eventually surface. I realized that the curse had been defeatist and detrimental. There was no curse, of course, until disappointed Boston fans kept bringing it up. It was what Lombardi said about watching your your thoughts, your words, your habits, they become your character. There was a curse indeed, but it was of our own making. But the truth is, more than the curse being detrimental, was how productive the believe sign turned out to be. I know it sounds silly that one word shown on a giant television might change reality for an instant. But I was there, and I can tell you it did. Without question, that moment, seconds before a play that will forever be known simply as The Steel. Was the turning point of the season and would change forever the history of the franchise and indeed the story of the city of Boston itself now, as you can tell I do enjoy sports <laughs> I wasn't much of an athlete ever though I did fairly well in basketball once upon a time until everyone else grew up around me but all the same following sports is something I do it's, it's kind of my guilty pleasure I'm not the most fanatic watcher of competitive athletics you'll ever meet, but I do enjoy watching football and basketball and some playoff baseball, if the Red Sox make it that far. Now, I have a Buddhist friend, however, who does not like sports. And we argue about it when talking about things as varied as religion and politics and society in general. We agree on most things, but not the value of sports. And here's where our argument always begins. They will talk about how professional athletics are damaging our society. They'll point out the fact that we idolize athletes for their physical abilities and rarely hold them accountable for behavior off the field, off the court, out of the ring. They'll say that professional sports are inherently counter-enlightenment as they compel us to become attached to success and failure, that win versus lose binary, one of the things the Buddha warns us against in the teachings of the Eightfold Path. They also think that athletes are paid too much money, given too much attention and influence. Professional and collegiate sports reinforce myths about success and power, and emphasize not the winning, but how many people must lose for there to be a single champion. Not to mention they're dangerous, they're exploitative of the athletes to the gain of a small number of true beneficiaries, like NFL owners or college football coaches who are often the highest paid employees of their respective states. As a person of faith familiar with Buddhist teachings myself, I am inclined to agree with my friend's condemnation of sports on many, many levels. Emphasizing winning and losing cheapens our human experience by making us focus not on the process but on the result. Lifting up physical specimens in our culture prevent us from appreciating the intellectual emotional and spiritual contributions of the rest of us. And again, focusing on one champion reduces everyone else to the level of losers. But I always seem to return to 2004 and how different Boston itself felt after the Red Sox won. After taking game seven in New York to win the series, after trailing three games to none, something that had never been done in all 101 previous years of the world series era people flooded the streets all across the city cars were left in intersections trolleys stopped on tracks mobbed with people strangers embraced on the street no one was indoors and everyone was elated when they won the title a week later the entire city seemed to lose weight, walked taller, smiled brighter. Despite the chilly New England fall and the normally chilly disposition of its inhabitants, Boston high-fived with strangers on the street, traded stories of triumphs, past and present with different generations of fans. Whether or not it should matter, it did matter. It changed the landscape of a city that arguably has had more sporting success than most, but who had lived for 86 years with that awful pit of the stomach feeling of having squandered its best, perhaps only opportunity at greatness. Now those of you in in the church who are Cubs fans might have had a similar experience a couple years ago when an even older drought and an even older curse was lifted. And though my Buddhist friend and I might disagree about this for the rest of our lives, there is one other element of sports that I do wanna lift up before we close here this Super Bowl Sunday, and it's one of connection. I've watched enough sports with enough different friends to know who was watching what game and how they're probably feeling at any given time during the contest. The most active communication I have, in fact, some of the only communication I have with some of my college friends is when the Patriots or Celtics are nationally televised. Though I'm not a Titans fan, I know my friend from Tennessee is, and I feel good for her if the Titans make a spectacular interception or a game-winning field goal, just as long as it's not against my Patriots. I didn't really care about the Blackhawks' recent success until I learned that my friend Brian was an avid fan, checking playoff scores on his phone during our young adult UU conference during their 2013 title run. The entirety of my wife's family are Packers fans, and I do always pull for the good old green and gold. I've sort of adopted them as my, my NFC team for which I will root up until they play the Patriots once every four years or in the Super Bowl, which disappointingly hasn't happened in the Brady-Rogers era. And as much as I would like to say that I'm not going to be attached to the outcome of this game, as much as I would like to claim the enlightenment of a good Buddhist practitioner, I know I will be, (laughs) I will be more More so than many, if any, of you here today attached to the success or failure inherent in the final score, hoping desperately that it doesn't go into overtime because I might not be able to take it, I will try to encourage myself, as I do all of us here, to pause for a moment and think about the connection we have to just some of the millions of people who will be watching tonight watching the game, or the halftime, or simply the commercials. Because like it or not, simply participating in this common spectacle of our culture brings us into community with the rest of us, if only for an evening. Most Most people in this country will be watching tonight, so it helps me to imagine that we're all watching together. And might we never forget that one moment can indeed change the course of history, shift our perspective from the defeatist, the negative, to the ever positive. The difference between falling to a curse and triumphing over impossible odds might just come down to that one little word, believe. So I say again, happy Super Bowl, everyone. Blessed be. Amen.